Shut up and sit down. <coughs> Excuse me. Mic check one two. Mic check one two. Uh, yeah, well, that, you heard that voice. I hope you can recognize it. We've got him back for the fourth time. It's uh, Dean Somerset's with us. He's actually our very first guest on the podcast. And if for some reason or other this is the first time you've ever heard of him, then I have no hope for you. I'm sorry. Can't help. We're going to skip the long intro. We've talked about him before. Uh, but I honestly do think you guys know who Dean is. So it's great to have you back. Welcome back. Thanks. I mean, they should. You drop my name in every episode. So. We've missed about four or five <laughs> out of a hundred. This will be 121, I think. So yeah, there was a couple of them like, oh, fuck, we didn't slip him in as an inside joke, right? There was, uh, I was thinking this morning, like, you know when your grandma gets you, like, a t-shirt for Christmas, and, like, you hate it, but you still wear it every time, like, your grandma's by? That's like Andrew and I, we got your t-shirts on today. Yeah, actually, not that I hate it, but it was just like, oh, I should wear it, Dean's coming over. <laughs> well, I actually genuinely like the shirt, and I wear it at least once a week at the gym, right? It's just, it, I like the way it fits, so I shirt. actually bought a t-shirt from Dean when you and Sam Spinelli did, uh, there's a, a one-day presentation at Evolve Downtown, and you had these t-shirts, I'm like, hell yeah, absolutely, they're high quality, yeah. so fuck it. Yeah, right? I, you know, and the funny thing is, is we mentioned Dean in every episode, and... It's because, and we have you back, is quite literally, you, I've said this numerous times, you are one of the people who has been most influential in my career. I've seen a lot of the way you, you conduct yourself, both with social media, but also the way you branch out into your career. And it's not, <clears throat> you even made a comment about this somewhere recently, I saw it. It's not about trying to pattern yourself against someone else. Like you, you go and you do your own thing. You don't just follow someone's career path exactly, but you can be inspired by and learn from the lesson of someone who is been successful and who acts with integrity. And I think those are two really key things. And I've been blessed where I've probably done 20 plus of your educational uh, speaking engagements because we worked for the same company for a long time and I got to do that shit for free. Yeah. So there was tons and tons of that. And then I started also stepping outside and paying for it even while we were within that company. And then one of the reasons why a lot of the good stuff's happened in my career is because I went to that first Kansas City Fitness Summit because you were speaking there. And then there's all these other people. I'm like, hey, it'd be cool to go down and see Bre uh, Breckenchera speak and Spencer Nadolski and uh, fuck. That. There's a whole bunch of other great names involved in that one. I remember uh, Mark Fisher was at that one. So yeah. go down, see all that. And then a lot of really cool things started coming from that. Absolutely. Yeah, you take compliments really well. That was a whole like... <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for influencing we, we me. Need to, we need to bring on a guest eventually that we don't like and just really torment them. I can think of a few. I won't say any names on air, but there'd be a couple of people who'd be like, it would be great to get them on. And I've actually, I'll say one, I've always joked about bringing the snake dad guy on just because he'd love the attention, yeah. but I don't think we'll stoop to that level. No, because I'd punch him in the face. Just go straight up like Joe Rogan style where you're trying to antagonize somebody and bring somebody on of different viewpoints. And He's not a nice guy. It can, like he's kind of, have you ever met him? No. Okay, because he's. I have. He just. We used to work at the bar, so he's. He's been. <laughs> he's just a weird. He's weird. Well, clearly he has. A, he has the snake diet, but like he's. I'm not gonna. We haven't actually heard a peep out of it in a while, so I kind of forgot about him. Let's. Uh. <laughs> what are we talking about today? So like, you, you, what did we talk about the first time? We talked about career stuff. 
second time what you're up to lately. Is that kind of what we're doing today? Well, let's let's go here. Like a lot because now we're kind of off the cuff a little bit. So it has been quite a while since we've actually had you on, even though it's your fourth appearance. Yeah. So I was just curious about what you've been up to. You've had a new project, your scientific application of mobility training. Yeah. I know you're going to present that in Vancouver at the beginning of May. Um, and some of the thoughts about your beginning, beginning your third year working independently as opposed to... And you were always a big brand with a lot of independent projects, but you're still under the commercial gym umbrella. Mm-hmm. So what are your thoughts on how the last year went and some of the stuff going into 2020? Um, that's a lot of questions in one question. <laughs> that's um, an Andrew thing. <laughs> <laughs> Here's 15 questions and I'll answer them all right now. <laughs> um, yeah, last year was really busy. It was probably one of the busiest years of my career. Um, the last three months, uh, or the last four months, uh, beginning in September, I did, we did the Evolve Strength Symposium. Then I went to Vienna to teach a workshop for a full day. Then I did the McGill conference that was in Edmonton as an attendee just so that I could learn. And uh, in each month, I was training about 180 sessions a month. So, yeah, that was a, a big time. I mean, I was so busy that when I went to Vienna, I left on Wednesday and came back on Sunday. So, like, Wednesday, you land on Thursday, had one day of free time, taught on Saturday, came back on Sunday, and was right back to work on Monday just because I didn't have any time to do anything else. So it was a grind, but yeah, it was a good time frame overall, and I'm hoping the clients are still happy with me. And, um, it's been a really good growth year, and I'm actually at the point where I'm thinking, okay, well now raise the rates on one-on-one just to be able to get a little bit of separation on things. And Yeah, it's been busy. That's something that you've, you've been able to earn. So here's actually a good question then. What are your thoughts on you know trainers, how to approach increasing your, your rate and uh, supply versus demand and, and how you go about it? Um, the biggest thing that I can say about that is uh, that everything gets more expensive with time. And service is going to get more expensive with time. Your expenses as a trainer is going to get more expensive with time. Every element that you look at is going to get more expensive. The last time I raised my rates was 2007. So it's been a while. Yeah, I, I've been fortunate enough that I've been able to grow and have a decent income over that time frame. But I'm not looking to crush the market and say, okay, I want to double my rates or do anything funky like that. But it's at a point where it's like, well, okay, now I, I definitely do need to increase the rate that I'm at. Just because you also look at what the market is willing to bear. There's a lot of trainers out there with, I'm not going to disparage any of them because they're all great at what they do. But very basic education and experience charging within about 10 to 20% of what I charge. And I'm not saying that I'm great or amazing or that they're bad or whatever, but if you want to stand out from the market, you have to stand out from the market one way or another. If you want to compete with people on price, you're going to lose. You either have to compete on volume or you have to separate yourself out somehow. I've been fortunate enough to separate out what I offer for most trainers, so I should separate out my pricing as a result of that. Um, Seth Godin has a really, I think it's Seth Godin, I'm pretty sure. He has a really cool approach when it comes to setting your prices is increase your rate by 20% until people say no. And then when they say no, you stay there until they start saying yes, 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 yes. Then you increase your rate by 20% until people start saying no. Or you go double of what you think it should be, and then you negotiate down. So I'm not going to double my rates or anything like that and start negotiating down. But the way that you can get an idea as far as what people value your services like is to actually increase your rate and then see what happens. So a $5 a session increase or a $10 a session increase, most people would be like, cool, whatever, I'll keep training. Or you might have maybe 10% of clients who say, hmm, that's more than I can afford, I'm out. But if you're training 40 sessions in a week and 10% of your clientele drop off, you're still making more money at the end of the day. 
and it gives you more leverage to do other things for those clients that you're charging more money for. Well, there's no natural progression. I, I think we brought this up a few times where like once you're kind of good at training and you get a full schedule, let's say 120 to 150 sessions, like you've made it. Like there's no other progression if you're not going to raise your rates. And like how long can you sit there yeah. in a career, most careers with inflation and progression and education, you're getting paid more over time. You could and, branch out into things like semi-private training. I know Tony Gentilcore is a big... Uh, that's what I mean. You're talking about like a approach. 20% buffer, but like you're there. Like you've yeah. already but you've still, arrived. There's limitations on scaling. Then you have to start looking at things like, well, do I want to hire employees underneath me or or take a cut of people that you're you know you're sending things to? Do a subcontract style. Yeah. And that... That has advantages and disadvantages because let's say you have employees and you, they have a whole bunch of clients and then they decide to leave and you have a giant problem to take care of. Can you actually take on all those clients yourself or you know you have the struggle of those clients wanting to leave with that trainer? So that that's something you have to think critically on and decide, hey, do I want to take this on and then scale by having employees, right? True. But part of that uh, also comes back, and I remember Joe DeFranco was talking about this on a podcast where he brought on a couple of trainers and then they left and opened their own thing and were recruiting all of his clients. But those clients eventually came back because they realized that the product was very different. So if you're worried about your employees taking your business away from you, then you also have to ask yourself, well, what am I doing that would make those clients leave in favor of somebody else who doesn't have the established name and brand that I have? So um, I think it's Alan Cosgrove always has the saying of, what if I educate my clients and then they, or what if I educate my trainers and then they leave? What if you don't educate your clients and they stay? So you want to be able to build up the value of what you offer to the point that people could try to copy it, but it's going to look like a copy of what you offer. And if people are willing to leave and then stay left because the business that somebody else offers on a shoestring budget is significantly better than yours, you need to reassess what your business is. Yeah, that makes sense. Peter Dupuy often repeats that phrase a lot too. We've said it numerous times on the podcast yep. and I absolutely wholeheartedly agree with that. Yeah, you have, you're definitely going to want to invest. If you're a gym owner, I don't know how many gym owners listen to this podcast. I think it's a great idea to invest in the education of your staff. Mm -hmm. Well, because then your product's good. Like, you don't, your gym full of shit trainers. Like, I don't think, sorry, that's, a, that's making fun of people. But, like, <clears throat> no, I don't think gyms open up purely to have a bad product. And, like, no. that is, you, you're going to have a bad product over time if, if your trainers aren't getting better. Like, it makes no sense. But it happens all the time. Yeah. I mean, it's really easy to open a gym. You just need a lease space, yeah. rubber flooring, music, and equipment. That's it. And then you have to do something with that. But if you're just opening up a gym based on, here's a gym, now come work out, it's just a commodity, which means that people are just going to look at what's the lowest cost that I yeah. can spend to be able to get that commodity somewhere else. If I go in and I buy a Diet Coke at a vending machine, it costs me $2.50. But if I go into Safeway or uh, Savon or a grocery store chain and I can get a six pack for $4 that brings my cost down to $1.50. Where am I going to spend my money? It's going to be at the one that costs less for the exact same product. So then it becomes a race to the bottom when it becomes a commodity. But if it's a compliment where you can actually expand on the service that you offer and deliver a higher value, then you're not competing on price. You're delivering on an experience that nobody else can replicate. I think that's probably the most important thing in there is the point about commodity. And I said this recently too. Uh, yeah. Like, you do not want to establish yourself as a trainer as a commodity. And going back to what you said about price, if you are competing on price, you are essentially making yourself a commodity. And another thing is too, is the type of clientele who are going to be shopping on and deciding based on price. I'm sorry, they're going to be 
on average, a much bigger pain in the ass than people who are looking for quality and want to work with you because of your skill set and your personality. Well, this is kind of timely too. Did you, I can't remember if it's you posted or you posted about pricing discounts. Like, what are your thoughts on that as, well, someone who does this, like pricing discounts, discounting your services as a trainer? Offering sales. Is sales. The that I, that I it was a, so a, sales is the, 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 the word. Yeah. I, I think there's ways to do it and there's ways to not do it. I mean, if you want to offer somebody, hey, if you come in and start training with me now, I'll throw in a free session. Great. That's easy enough to be able to do because you're not devaluing what you're, do- you're giving the client. You're actually just giving them something for free. Or if you want to say, hey, if you refer somebody into me as a thank you, I'll give you a free session. Or I'll give you branded merchandise or whatever. Fantastic. But you're keeping the dollar value that you charge relatively the same. Now, imagine if you have a situation where you're charging five clients five different rates. And then they talk to each other in the change room and they say, oh, he's charging me this. Oh, wait, he's charging me that. Why is he charging me this and he's charging you this? And then they all start coming to you for the lower price. And then you have to justify why are you charging somebody 10, 20 or $30 more than somebody else for literally the exact same product. Because they're a better client. I think, um, and it goes back to our discussion about increasing rates and based on your answer, I think I know yours is that you will scale the long-time clients because long-time clients are going to value what you're doing and they're going to be willing to pay more. Uh, I know Nick Trumanello said this on social media somewhere that you know, he doesn't increase the rates of clients that he's had for a long time. And up to this point, I and it's, there's only like two different tiers for me and it's very close, but I the people who started with me when I went independent, I grandfathered them at a certain rate. And then last year, I increased my new client rate by $5. And so I definitely have those two tiers and I'm actually very open with my clientele about that. And it's like mm-hmm. the people who were with me for that period of time, I continue to grandfather that. And I said to them, I'm going to make sure that I keep there at least a couple of years. You know, I'm not promising it forever, but <clears throat> I think you can do that. And I don't think that there's a right and wrong answer to say uh, that grandfathering some people is wrong or making your old clients inc- pay the increased rate is wrong. I think it's just all and how you go about it. Netflix did it. Yeah, and like everyone lost their shit, but they're still doing fine because like yeah. at some point people understand that like they have to raise their prices. They're a TV network now. Yeah, I mean part of it is how do you explain it to the individual? Yeah, do you explain it as if you're not willing to do it? Like oh I'm sorry, but you know this is I'm going to be doing this, or if you ask their opinion on it, or if you say you know hey beginning February one I'm going to be increasing my rates. If that works for you, great. If not, well. Yeah. We'll find a way to make it work for you one way or another, but here's what's going to happen going forward. If you want to justify grandfathering in clients that were previously trained with you at a lower rate, great, whatever. But just make sure that the communication is clear. Let's talk about, uh, well, uh, we have something about educational projects, but what inspires you to develop new products? Because at, at this point, and there's a progression on this question, but like at this point, you've done a lot of stuff. So what goes into making something new? Like how, what, like what research goes into that for you? A lot of it comes to what do I look at in the industry as far as what does it need? And then can I actually deliver what it needs? So when I first came out with something like post rehab essentials, there wasn't a lot of talk about injuries when it came to trainers and especially in so as a, like a trainer delivering information on injuries. Most of it was a physiotherapist or a chiropractor trying to deliver rehab programs in a gym setting, which is kind of counterintuitive. It's like, okay, if you're delivering a rehab program, it should be in a rehab setting, not necessarily for somebody who's got a 20-year-old meniscus tear who still has mild issues with certain movements. 
So how do you identify that and make them get a training effect versus being rehab purgatory for the rest of their life? So that was what brought out uh, post rehab essentials. But then part of it also comes down to what am I interested in at that point in time? With like ruthless mobility, that was a great product at that point in time. But then I was like, you know what? I want to dig deeper into the research on it. And that's why I'm coming out with scientific applications of mobility because it's way more into the actual research end of what's involved with mobility. You hear a lot of talk about mobility and it's like almost this nebulous term that's going to fix everything and make everything better. But does the evidence actually bear that out? That's what I wanted to look at. For the majority of stuff that you see, no amount of mobility training will prevent an injury. You can stretch for five minutes a day, 50 minutes a day, five hours a day. It doesn't have an effect on preventing an injury. But what's the first thing that people tell you to do when it comes to injury prevention? Stretching. Stretch. It has literally no benefit. And in many cases, the more mobile somebody is, the greater their injury risk is. So we got to start looking at what the evidence actually says and how do we take that evidence and then do something with it into a gym. A lot of the time you'll see research courses where it's like, here's the body of research. And then somebody says, okay, well, what do I do with that? And they're like, I don't know. So now we got to actually find some answers to some of those big questions. Bridge the gap. And this is actually one of your skill sets. And this kind of goes to anyone who is trying to build a brand or get themselves out there more. You can be the person who is conducting the research and doing the, the, the almost the clinical research lab sort of level work. Yeah. But a really important skill is to be the person who can take that, interpret it, and distill it down into something that is really accessible to, if your audience in your case, it's probably primarily other fitness professionals, but there's gonna be a lot of enthusiasts. Yeah. So if you can deliver that information in a really easily accessible form, people are gonna follow you, they're gonna buy your work, your products in whatever form they are, and you're gonna make a lot of money doing it. I was gonna say, how do you combat, so like, we're taking this research and we're taking some of those theories and putting them into training and how does it affect training? How do you defend yourself by using some of that mechanistic stuff in your own training that is maybe isn't necessarily studied? Like, so that study didn't connect this to a squat, but you connected the mechanistic stuff in a squat and mobility. Like, how do you defend yourself when you get into those arguments? Because we've seen them, well, you were recently in one, but there's like, there's been oh, a lot of arguments. Uh, uh, okay, so let's, but there's, let's, no, but there's let's, been let's a, do that, let's do that. No, but there's I, been a lot of arguments about <laughs> science and the specific science, but then the context gets lost or the mechanistic stuff can't be used properly. And there's just this big argument everywhere. So where's your stance on that? Because you have to make a product that maybe isn't necessarily supported specifically by a specific study. Yeah, um, I'm gonna come out and just say like, if I'm gonna put out information, I'm gonna say this is supported by science or this is my interpretation of the science. So if I'm saying like, do this stretch here, do this mobility mechanism, it's my interpretation of what the research says, I'm open to being wrong about it. If I'm wrong, show me a different way and cool, great. Well, I'll be able to go with that. So it's not a matter of, you know, I wanna put out stuff that's only backed by 100% specific applicable research. It's going to be, well, here's the direction that the research is showing you. Now, what do I do with that in the gym? So it's going to be stuff that is going to be kind of a, I guess you could say a not a direct correlation to what research is showing, but just be honest with people saying, you know, this is what I would interpret this research to actually show. If I'm looking at something and saying, well, people's hip anatomy is very different here, here, here. Here's how I look at it, knowing that I have the tools at my disposal and the tools that I don't have at my disposal. Can I do an x-ray on a client to be able to determine their rate or the angle of femoral, or femoral acetabular retroversion? No, but I can do a hip scour <laughs> to be able to get a good approximation and eyeball and then say, okay, now show me how you squat and do the dots connect in a way that I would be able to say, okay, this paint's a relatively 
clear picture for what I'm trying to see. Has I, there, I was going to say, so you've done a lot of research because of your products and that, that's why this is kind of a cool question. How much, mm -hmm. how much have you ignored, not ignored, but veered away from, even though it's said in science, but you knew it to be true because of your experience? Like, has there been any cases like that where there's been like some black and white answers in science and you just don't feel like that's the same that you're seeing? Not really. Because, I mean, if the numbers come out and my thought is one way, but the numbers come out pointing another direction and then more research is done showing that that is the case, you can change your mind about things. Yeah. It's all right. You don't have to be like set in stone about everything all the time. It's one of the great things about opinions is that you can change them. So as more information comes out, cool. Just follow the opinions and then say, okay, well, I'm doing this and I'm getting this result. Why? Why am I actually getting this result? Is it because of what I thought was happening in the first place? Or is it because of a secondary thing that I didn't think was actually there? But now I have to change my stance on what's actually going on. Is there any, so this is, this is where the other end of the question comes in. Has there been any noticeable progressions in your approach to training from the science or just your philosophies throughout your career? Like anything that like stood out, like maybe one or two things? Um, a lot of the work that you do in the gym doesn't really do much unless the person has everything else cornered. So recovery has to be there. If people aren't sleeping, the gym workouts are going to suffer. Their progress is going to suffer. Quality food has to be there. If they're not getting that nutrition in, if they're looking to lose weight or gain muscle, it's just not going to happen the way you want it to. So you have to accomplish that stuff first before you have to even worry about what's going on in the gym. And I used to be kind of the opposite. I was like, if I get people in the gym and get them moving, it's going to solve a lot of problems. And it did, but it didn't solve the big problems. It just kind of solved the initial phases of stuff but then when people drop off the wagon as far as coming to the gym and work out, they're right back to where they were. So if we can get them to understand the importance of, do you have a good sleep schedule? Are you eating good quality food? Are you drinking water? And are you taking care of your stress? That's going to cover way more of the rocks when it comes to health, performance, body composition than I could achieve by saying, okay, I want you to stand with your toe turned out like this when you're doing your squat. And I'll qualify that a little bit too because I don't want people to think that you're saying that. Don't start in the gym until you get all this stuff done. Absolutely. If anything, going to the gym and working out can be a fantastic linchpin habit that then will help mm -hmm. people start to do better with these other behaviors. Yeah. But it's the it's those technical little details that really don't matter, the minutiae that doesn't matter very much if they're not then taking care of the, the sleep and the nutrition. Yeah. It's a matter about the big rocks. Yeah. So exercise is in many ways a smaller rock than sleep and nutrition. So you still have to get some exercise in there, but the big rocks still have to be big rocks. Anything else? <clears throat> I was going to say two things. First, let's go back to uh, your scientific application uh, mobility training and tell everybody about what's coming up for this year for that. Um, well, I've got a workshop coming in Vancouver, and that's May 2nd. Um, I'm just finalizing some of the content for it. I'm digging deep into what... A lot of like the neurophysiology about a lot of the structural changes that actually happen. What does the actual research say when it comes to humans? Not a lot. Because it's really hard to dissect humans and get that through ethics boards. It's kind of a mess. But there's a lot of research done on rats or pigs or other animals that are then correlated into animal study or into humans. And then you can make some juxtapositions, which comes back to what the science actually mm -hmm. says. So it's like if people are saying, oh, when you flex your, your discs or your spine, it leads to herniations. That's been studied a lot in pigs, not directly in humans, because how do you run a research trial where you're like, I want to herniate all the discs in your spine? 
and then you know have fun. <laughs> you know, it's going to be a hard study to get volunteers into, and it's going to be hard to get it through ethics boards or universities or through publications. But you can take a pig cadaver and flex it until the disc herniates, and then track what that data point is. With something like, I want to look at a knee and just fixate, just put it into a locked position, and then see what changes happen at the joint capsule or at the muscle tissue, and see what actually leads to that joint becoming stiff. But we gotta dissect that knee, we gotta rip it up, and we gotta get down into the nitty-gritty cellular stuff. You're not gonna find too many volunteers for that kind of study. So that's where animal studies come in, and then you use a correlation into humans. I think you, you just wrote about that, I don't know if you just wrote about that. Maybe it was your article, or maybe I was researching, but like where they put the, was it the bird? Leg, the rat, the rat, yeah, <laughs> the rat leg in a split, right? Yeah, and then checked if it, it it worked. Yeah, so they wanted to see, you know, what was happening when you fixate a joint, and then what are the changes? What are the muscular changes? What are the joint changes? So they saw that the muscular changes would go through a degenerative phase for a little while, but then they would reverse and get back almost to normal after like twelve and sixteen weeks. So muscles adapt really well to whatever situation they're put in. The joint just progressively deteriorated over time just in a linear approach. Well, and that's the reason why I asked that, because at this point, just even with ethics and morals, is a lot of these studies that could connect a lot of these pieces aren't going to fucking happen. Like, it's going to be mechanistic at this point for yeah. a lot of stuff, because, like... Unless we go back, like, 100 or 200 years into medical science where you get uh, volunteers or, like, <laughs> prisoners or slaves and stuff like that, and you run really unethical treatments on them, it's just not going to happen. But. When, when I was even even just my my thought process has changed a little bit because there, there's a lot of studies now with volume training and uh, mm -hmm. intensity and all that stuff. And I was just in one at Ben House's place, and like we were all high level lifters, and the study was a complete shit show in terms of like adherence and all this stuff. Because like, and we're talking about guys who who knew what was going on. Some people weren't finishing their reps, and they they for, were forgetting counts and all this stuff. And there's just so much shit that can go wrong in a study. Yeah. That like it's it just opened my eyes up to being like, and then you have to track all that adherence and non-adherence, right? And, that, and then and that, that doesn't happen. That as an information bias within the study, right? And is that happening? Maybe. And that's where it's like you see all these studies. I just want to see now after being part of one. I want there to be like a video camera in the room, and I want to watch the studies because then that, that would inform a little bit of how much I'm going to use of that because there's so much shit out there now and and differing opinions about everything. It's it's really hard to sift through what's. Yeah. What's real? If you could ever get 100% adherence from all study participants, you would change the game. <laughs> it's just not going to happen. Like, no. you know, medication studies, like people <laughs> forget to take a pill or a medication or they skip a treatment. Or, Throws it off. Yeah. Or they just drop out of the trial and it, that happens. That's part of the research game. That's something I think a lot of the lay people who aren't involved in it, they just don't see. I mean, I was involved in a training study when I was in university where you had to take it was de determining about like protein supplementation versus placebo. So you had to take this mixture that you didn't know whether it was protein or placebo and use that as like nutritional supplementation for a weight training workout. The program, the, the way that it was designed was intense. And I was only able to complete about 80% of the workouts myself. And I was like, okay, cool, research, go, go, go. Just push through. And I was just like, I am dead to the world. Because I was also studying for finals and trying to, you know, live. And it's hard to do when you're on some of these really intense research trials. Well, and then that like goes into the other stuff. Is your other stuff in your life taken care of? Because it's clearly not. Yeah. It's just the roof of your sleep. So is that study even valid? Because now you're you're a starving student. Like the study is basically, let's start starving students who are stressed and see yeah. if the protein works. Yeah, and see if protein and ramen noodles has an effect on <laughs> uh, building any kind of muscle or craft dinner or something like that and all the binge alcohol on the weekends, right? Well, it's, it, it sounds like I'm like not... 
I don't like the listen to science. I think the science is like awesome. It's just like now I'm question not questioning it, but I'm looking at it with a different lens, and it's, yeah. it it can be useful, but I can't take it for the word yet, just well, because like I've seen it now. You also have to look into the science and not just look at the conclusion mm-hmm. section. So you have to look at what are the methods, what was the adherence, what is the statistical design. When it shows an average, what's the standard deviation on that? Because if the standard deviation is larger than the effect size, you've got a shit show of a research trial going on. So it's not going to be an easy X plus Y equals Z all the time. And it's not always going to be a black and white type of thing. You have to look at it. But the big thing to remember about science is they're just individual data points. That's it. Like when somebody runs one study, it's just one data point. So think about it like a painting that you're looking at where all the artist did was take a paintbrush and put a little drop of paint on the canvas. That's a one single paintbrush dot. Now you got to get all the other ones to form a picture. So it's not going to be the one study that forms a picture. It's going to be the collection and the entire body of all the studies that paint that picture for you. And something that I tend to do specifically and recommend other people, and it kind of goes to you, is take a look at the people in the industry who understand the language of scientific research. Mm -hmm. And if that group of people who are generally respected people come to largely the same conclusion or close, then that's a good resource because I am not interested mm-hmm. in sitting and reading research papers. We've had a ton of guests and it's actually kind of a running joke when we used to have, we've changed this question now about what are you reading? But some of them would say, well, they like reading research papers and that's, yeah. that's their recreation. And to me, that's like, holy shit. But a lot of those people are my go-tos for understanding what is probably pretty scientifically valid at this point because you yeah. can't unequivocally like you cannot for certain prove anything you can just try to disprove a hypothesis and continue to to the point where it's like it just doesn't seem like we can disprove this so we generally accept it to be true yeah. but you get people like uh, dr mike isertel is very good in this realm uh, dr lane norton uh, our friend dr sam spinelli is wonderful and there's a longer long list of people and, and you're in there too you're the one who's getting into this research and you both have the knowledge and the capacity to digest this research and then turn it into something that we can take from you. And I learned to trust these resources. Mm-hmm. And if those resources, those people are saying certain things about what the research is saying, that's good enough for me to operate on as I distill it down in my clientele. Well, this would be maybe a better picture because you have done this and like you've turned it into products and seminars and you've traveled the world. How does someone, because there's a lot of trainers that listen to this, get that lens? Because right now we talk about we talk about mass review and all these things. Like there's a lot of resources for us, to, so we don't have to do the work. What does the work look like to then not rely on other people for information? Well, you're kind of always relying on somebody else. You're relying on the researchers who do the work. You're relying on uh, third parties who interpret the research and then give it out to you with their opinions. You're always going to rely on somebody else unless you're a primary source researcher, because then you're taking in the actual data, distilling it, creating the statistical analysis and then putting it out there. But even then you're basing that on what is the rest of the research looking like and what is the industry showing you and how are you going forward? So you're always relying on somebody else. It's just a matter of who are you relying on? So if I'm relying on the other researchers and asking them questions, it's no different than somebody who's a trainer who's asking me questions about the research. It's just, they're gonna have a way more direct answer because they actually ran the bloody study. So if they can say, we did this and this happened, Okay, cool. That tells me information about the study that you did. If somebody asks me, what do you think about static stretching? Well, here's the, what the body of research that I've seen says, and here's what I would recommend you do if you're working with your clients. Okay, cool. But it's not like I'm running the study. I'm just giving my opinion based on what I've seen in the studies. 
I guess more specifically, <laughs> we'll say that you want to rely on the scientists. What has been your method for, I guess, assimilating the research and then coming to your own conclusions from it? Like, because there's a lot of people who are like, well, I don't know how to look at research and it, it's it's not that hard. But yeah. like, what was your process, I guess, initially starting into that road to then develop it into something? And that's basically what you're doing yeah. now. Well, I went to U of A, got a Bachelor of Science degree in Kinesiology, which had a really high focus on scientific research and reading the research. So there's probably about a half dozen courses that were just on reading research in one way or another, whether it was like beginner sports psychology or advanced anatomy, physiology, all those kind of stuff involved reading research. So I spent about five years of my life reading research and learning how to read research into the minutiae of like, here's what this statistical analysis actually involves. Here's what this different type of statistical analysis involves. And here's the results that it gets out. So that was my approach. That's not going to be for everybody. If you want to get deeper into the research, there are research reading projects and products out there and some really smart people who put out stuff about how to read research. I remember when I first started looking on online and doing some social media stuff, Mark Young, who's a trainer out of um, just outside of Toronto, he put out a product called How to Read Research. Mm. And I don't even think he has a website for that anymore, but he would be a person that I would look at and say, hey, do you still have this course as a valid? Can I do it? And beyond that, there's tons of people out there who are educators who teach how to read research. There's, I think you can go into Harvard and go to some of their free Great websites classes. and do some or like low cost mm -hmm. classes and find ways to read scientific research. But the biggest thing to do is that you actually have to learn how to read it and why it's set up the way it is and how detailed that statistical analysis becomes. I think another good resource too to kind of, because I think we all have approaches to it and I think there's a little bit of a difference between the three of us where I tend to like to rely on the quote experts, the people I trust. Yeah. There's some really great research reviews that'll sort of bridge a little bit of that gap too. They're presenting yeah. the research in, in a very direct form for you. And they're still talking about it. So Jamie Krieger's Weightology is one of the best ones. Yeah. Uh, you've got uh, Mass. That's yeah. uh, Eric Helms. Greg. Greg's Greg such an anomaly. Like he'll be the guy who will be like, I want to run my own statistical analysis on weight categories yeah. of IPF lifters and see if this trend is a feature yeah. or not. And he just creates like his own statistical analysis out of thin air, and it's amazing. He runs the data from the people that were. <laughs> Like, so they'll do, I can't remember the RCTs or where, where they take all the studies and they, they get results from it. He'll take yeah. all that raw data and then do his own and, and then be like, yeah, analysis. their their analysis was actually a little off because they didn't do this, this, and this. And I'm like, why don't you just write it? Yeah, well, he'll do a meta-analysis for fun yeah. because he's bored on a Sunday. And that's the incredible thing. It's like he'll take an existing body of data and condense it down like you would boil down stock for a soup or something like that and find out all the intricacies of the data at that point, just because that's what he likes to do on his downtime. <laughs> but that's why I like, like that, that, the reason why I asked you the question before is because I think that there is a lot of value in stuff like mass because then you get these guys who you're never, like we're never going to be as smart as Greg in terms of doing just that exact thing. Yeah. So it's pretty easy to be like, well, I'll just go read his like layman's version of this and you yeah. just saved yourself his 10 years of, of craziness. Yeah. I mean, the people who put out the research reviews are always going to be great because they're deep into the research. That's what they love to do. Um, again, you're looking at the opinion of somebody who's reading the research and giving it out to you. So that's awesome. I mean, it's exactly why you would want to do that. Now, if you have three or four research reviews talking about something similar and coming to the same conclusion, odds are it's probably correct. Not to say that it is or isn't, but odds are the general trend is moving towards that direction. I think there's also an argument, and I think this will appeal to you, Dean, is... Guido, is 
you can also uh, expose yourself to a variety of different resources and highly educated people. And I know you like some of the, you're very close with some of the guys who pattern themselves as rebels yeah. in this world. So Dr. Pat Davidson and, and Dr. Van House. Nelson. Yeah, Mike well, T. Nelson. Just, we, 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 yeah. Like we're friends with Mike T. Nelson, with love and respect. We had him on the show. And, yeah. and these are these are quality people. But they, they're still challenging some of the traditional ways well, of and being thinking. Cha- and being challenged. And like, it's just like, they're open to being challenged, which is important. Well, yeah. even, I think you wrote something about stretching, and, like, you're still getting challenged. Yeah. So, like, I mean, like, it, it's weird because, like, we'll just say that Dean's normal, and that these guys aren't normal. But, like, there's people that think you're, you're an idiot. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. it's just, like, it's... And that's why it's hard as, like, even a trainer to go and... We'll, we'll talk about those four people, but, I mean... Who do you listen to and who's right? And I like to just listen to everyone and come to my own conclusions. But I mean, that's 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 what I've noticed you do. I'd say that's one of the best ways. And if somebody creates a really compelling argument for you, try it out. That's honestly like it's only going to be words until it becomes action. So if you're listening to everybody say, do this, do this, do this. And you're like, okay, cool. And then you just go and do whatever it was you were doing before, whatever. But if you try something new and it gets better results or worse results than you were doing before, that forms your opinion. Well, and that's where I think the, the reason why I've been like that is because I was the opposite of that. And like when we first met, I was like strictly powerlifting and I got to do these, like externally yeah. rotate my knees and do all that shit. And like yeah. I was why fucked. Why do I want to breathe? Yeah. And like, I was <laughs> fucked up. Like, and I'm still fucked up from it. But like the reason why I'm like that is because I don't want people to go through how I, so I was dogmatic. I listened to people that probably didn't know much about training, but they knew about powerlifting and, yeah. and they try to condense that information and apply it to everything yeah and like this is fitness i was like well now i and i know that not to be true yeah but like there is a problem with being dogmatic is that if if the stuff doesn't work you're you're only stuck with one way of doing things and that leaves a there's no options on the table if something does go awry yeah and a lot of it also comes down to questioning why why does it do what it does so let's say that you're in the powerlifting world and you have somebody like Westside barbell telling you to do something a certain way they're doing that for a specific population powerlifters, right? If they're saying do this reverse hyper because it'll milk the disc and help resorb a disc herniation, okay, cool. That might work really well if somebody's 350 pounds and is squatting a thousand pounds and has enough structural stiffness and gristle around their spine to control against that force. We take Gladys from HR who's got a sore back and she's 110 pounds soaking wet and say, okay, we want you to get ridiculously aggressive on this reverse hyper and on rep two, she throws her back out even worse and now can't weight bear on her left leg. What are we doing? Well, and I think that does happen a lot more than like, we kind of make fun of it. Like everyone wants their clients to be powerlifters. But I mean, when you're kind of coming up as a trainer, you'll learn something and then that is everything. Yeah, you apply and, it to everyone and, and see like, where it sits. And like that is part of the process of developing, but you can't stop at the first thing you learn. It's kind of like what I've kind of come yeah. to the conclusion. But you have to play with everything. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like if I wanted to do a reverse hyper with Gladys from accounting, why would I want to do that? And what safety precautions could I put into place to make sure it doesn't make things worse? So could I not do a reverse hyper with it? Cool. But could I use that in a way that makes her a benefit? Yeah, absolutely. Maybe we don't attach weights to her ankle. Maybe we just get her to lay on the pad and then lift one leg at a time in a controlled manner. We're doing a reverse hyper. We're not doing it the exact same way that Westside Barbell would recommend for that 350 pound power lifter, but we're getting a similar result just in a different way. We're massaging the, the process to meet the individual in front of us. I was Gladys doing like a wide stance box squat low bar after. Why not? <laughs> she might be. I mean, she might. But be she might be because like that's what I mean. You yeah. can't. You is can't wear two ply or is she raw. I mean, but like she maybe might be that in helps that day. But you know. But I think that that's where like, and 
we were talking about arguments, but like a lot of it's task specific and, and contextual to the person, and that argument gets lost. And, yeah. and you talk about broad sweeping statements, and like yeah, that is probably the most dangerous—not even the most dangerous thing. Because like my my buddy, I, as much as I agree with him, I agree with you, and, and then the broad sweeping well, statements. Well, let's actually let's actually like address that because you mentioned sort of an argument, and it, uh, arguments an overblown word. And I'm gonna make a couple points about this. So I saw a blanket statement online. I didn't know who the hell the guy was. I certainly didn't know he was your buddy, and he was basically clearly implying he 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 backed off a little bit and then totally straw manned it and moved the yardsticks by what he was talking about afterwards which i'm just like i disengaged but he basically said that general population people blanketly shouldn't barbell back squat. is it they're overprescribed? yeah overprescribed. but he he really clearly implied this so i went in there and i basically just said you know we're better than making these broad sweeping statements across general population I will use, I work with a lot of people who I gobble squat with them or safety bar, but I've actually worked with a lot of people where they like to and barbell squat very, very well. Mm -hmm. And so you double down on the statement and then it shifted. Here's the other point. Arguing on the internet is fucking pointless. And I remind myself once every six months, because I rarely do this, and sure enough, it was your buddy and you saw it. And if he dropped your name, he's like, oh, I fixed your boy Dean's squats. And it's like, oh, God. Lovely. But, But... it, it was a distraction, and I looked at this and I'm going, yep, this is a good little reminder why I don't do this crap anymore. <coughs> and then, you know, there's more comments and try to draw it out, and I just, and I walked away from it, and they're just like... But they're good to watch, so like, I like the, I don't like them, I think that I could participate in them, they're horrible, but there's a lot of big players that got involved, and like, I honestly didn't agree with some of, like, the bigger players in the industry, because like, the argumentation wasn't... They weren't addressing each other. They were just playing their biases like, you're wrong, you're wrong. And then nothing got it. And I'm like, you're both fucking right. So it's, and and so that's where this science thing comes in and these arguments come in is like, you can both be right. Yeah. And there is an interpretation that goes with all these stuff. I just don't like when, and the reason why I talk about mechanistic stuff is he got picked apart for some of his mechanistic stuff and applying it with his knowledge to this certain contextual thing. They're like, you can't do that because there wasn't a specific study on it. I'm like, well, then we can't do anything. Yeah. Especially when it comes to applying outcomes of training to specific physiology. I mean, we can do that to a certain point, but when it's like, oh, when you do this, it loosens up the joint capsule. How do you know that? Like, how do you actually know that I mean, we could do it under fluoroscopy where we're actually looking at the joint itself, and it's not going to show slack up here out of magic on a ligamental structure. I mean, you've got to get really ridiculously in depth into the study on that kind of stuff and actually dissect yeah. everything out in order to be able to see a 1% change in ligamental or joint structure to be able to get there. So, when you're like, oh, it loosens the joint capsule, it doesn't. When you look at stuff like band distraction work, mm. in theory, it sounds really cool. But how do you know it's actually doing what you think it's doing? Seems like people have moved off of that as a like a lot of the experts, the, the smarter people I follow in the industry, have kind of moved away. Sam Spinelli, I know, said something recently that he just doesn't do that stuff. Yeah. And there was a time where it became very popular. I think uh, becoming a self leopard is probably the resource where that kind of became a big thing. Yeah. But now it seems like less and less. I see the powerlifters at the gym still doing this stuff. Yeah. But I see a lot of the people that I respect the most just that's not a tactic they use anymore yeah. at all. Well, I mean, in order to do a good distraction, for one, you have to anchor the body, and then two, the, the joint that you're trying to distract has to be free to move. So if I'm kneeling on the ground with a band around this hip, for one, that knee is not free to move, and my torso isn't anchored. 
So all I'm doing is just trying not to let the band pull me sideways. And I'm using the opposite knee, I'm using my core, I'm using everything. I'm probably tensing up the muscles in that hip, which is preventing any distraction from occurring to begin with. So everything that you're trying to do isn't happening. Well, that's where, yeah. It might just be really cool to feel the tension of the band high up in your grundle when maybe you got an adductor that needs a little bit of TLC. And it, yeah, cool. It feels well, that's where cool. it's like, this stuff is like the mobility wide stuff isn't crazy because there's a lot of people got a lot of results and he still gets results from it. But it's yeah. just like, is it because of what you're saying? And like, I think that that's where the biggest thing with all these arguments is like, I don't even know if half the people understand that. It's like, is is this the thing that's happening or is it just something else? Maybe their core, got, maybe maybe they just got kind of a little bit more parasympathetic because they calmed down with the band. Like, or maybe they just actually focused on it for once yeah. in their life and all of a sudden about that it. changed, right? A lot of what is true across all these different modalities, be it foam rolling or stretching or band stretch or whatever, is you're relaxing the neural tone of the the tense area and you can temporarily loosen it up so you do stuff on it. Mm-hmm. But what isn't necessarily happening is any real long-term adaptation. A lot of time, if you can loosen up your hips or your knee or, or a, a stiff ankle and then be able to turn around and squat or do whatever training modality you're using, get into controlled end range of motion, stronger that's probably where you're going to get the benefit yeah. is to load that joint into end range safely being smart about it but the <clears throat> the tactic you use to loosen up to get into that end range might be a tool to what's really causing the effect which is the actual training of it so. yeah i mean it could come down to whatever system you want to use whether it's supple leopard uh, rpr or is it prp i can't remember rpr 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 relax perform reset reflexive something reset yeah so whatever whatever <laughs> technique they use well, is maybe P- it's pnf stretching into yeah. a range of motion FR- frc yeah frc maybe it's foam rolling maybe it's opp yeah you know me i don't know but <laughs> if it does something that allows the body to achieve the goal of being able to start training in a better state cool go for it i've actually talked to kelly Sturette about supple leopard and i was like why did you write it the way you did i'm not like arguing with you I'm just asking like where was your thought process for writing that he's like I wanted to find a way to write a book that would capture everybody knowing that I wasn't going to capture anybody because that's what the purpose of a book is is to reach a broad audience I actually think it's a great book for trainers to read and qualify I think there's a mountain of incredible information there there are two things that stand out to me that I fundamentally disagree with one is I don't think that the band distractions are particularly useful um, in like a what they're sort of promised. And two, I fundamentally disagree with the statement that feet should be straightforward or within five degrees of straightforward. Yeah. But people who can zero in on those things, the fact is the book is full of fantastic training knowledge. I wouldn't put that book in front of a trainer who has not worked with more than 10 hours of, of clients at the beginning of their career. I would give that to a trainer who's one to two, three years in, who's already had some experience exposed to some other things to then enhance their experience and have the critical have the experience to be able to decide for themselves what is valuable in that book and what is yeah, and yeah. like what to use it for because like you can use something and then have it just have a reason for why you're using it i think that that gets lost with the book yeah because it's just like i would say it's like giving dynamite to like a kid yeah <laughs> with a bunch of matches like they he literally gives you hundreds of stuff you can do and some of it could fuck you I, up i know i know fuck our, is up. but it's designed for like crossfitters yeah like that's the market that he was designing for was for the crossfitters who want to do crossfit or but were so beat up from doing crossfit that they couldn't crossfit anymore so yeah yeah i wouldn't start it off with like a very brand new beginner client but you might take a smattering of a couple of these type of drills or a couple of those that matched up with the client that you're working with in their goal set. And yeah, cool, go for it. Well, at least he did something. Like that's the one thing I respect yeah. him for is he, he was 
he was out on YouTube before anyone was, and he was trying shit. Like, he, th- that was basically his, like, own brainchild. Yeah. And he's the one who pushed that whole... Like, I would say he's probably more responsible for a lot of the stuff that's happening than a lot of people can take credit for. Absolutely, because he was an early adopter, and he was a visual presence. Mm-hmm. But also, what he was doing was coming from a place of experience and authority, because he's got a doctorate, and he was also able to back up everything he was saying in a way that sounded logical. And he got results. That is the one yeah. thing that, like, everyone, like, we make fun of bad distractions, and I've seen a lot of people tear his stuff apart. He got, he, like, he made money outside of his book. Like, he has a practice and a gym and all these things. Like, yeah, people he, wouldn't go to him if it wasn't working. Who cares why it was working? It could be a placebo. If you're to come to your gym and teach a workshop, it's going to cost you 10 grand. Easily. Plus, you got to buy a beer for every single person who shows up for the social event afterwards. Yeah. So, yeah, he's making money on it, and he's showing the results on it. Because he can back it up. Same thing with FRC. Mm-hmm. I mean, everyone who talked about Andrew Spina coming out saying, oh, all you're doing is just isometrics. Cool. He created a system where he could show you when and how to put it into place. And he's got people going around the world showing how to do these kind of systems. People hate him. Yeah. And But he's making a lot of money because like, people are actually getting better. And like that's the yeah, weird yeah. thing is like all this shit, like, and I think we talked, I don't even know where we talked about it, but... When it, whatever the context or principle or the the reason why you're using it, that's the reason for the person. Yeah. So like, if they want to use FRC and get better flexibility, like that, they don't have to. They don't need to squat. Like they don't even fucking want to squat. They want to do this. So maybe. like, fuck off. Or maybe they. Maybe want, they don't. Yeah. Maybe they just want to be able to, you know, get down on their knees and get back up off their knees if they want to clean the the kitchen floor. <laughs> or maybe they want to be able to be a downhill skier or an elite tennis player or somebody like that who's got a chronic injury that they just can't shake. Yeah. So it's not a matter of saying, well, it's going to work for everybody. It's going to work for the people that you delineate down the yeah. concepts to that individual in front of you and make it fit who they are. But if you try to use an, a hammer for everything, everything's going to look like a nail. I'm going to make it a, a assumption. You're probably going to answer this, but I mean, I know Kelly is big in the CrossFit world. So I'm kind of assuming that a lot of the good things he's bringing into play, his ideas, probably help refine the way CrossFit goes about stuff. And he's probably... I would assume, assume that he's had a massive net positive effect on the quality of people's training and joint health and he's just having a really massive positive effect across the board mm-hmm. despite some things that we may fundamentally disagree with. Yeah. I you get people to stretch you get people, and foam roll. Yeah. I mean, when you get people to pay attention to stuff, that stuff gets better. So when people are like, oh, well, I can't get my shoulders into an overhead position for doing an overhead squat... Here's 50 things that you can do to help you get a range of motion to get into that overhead squat. Cool. Now you can do your overhead squat. Great. Now you can train the way you want to. So it's not something where it's like, okay, well, if I show you solutions and they don't work and you don't get better, this is going to be something that I just keep going forward with. You have to show results. And it's just got to be something that makes people buy into it and feel and see visual progress. Something that the three of us all share is none of us get entrenched into emotionally held belief systems or strong ideologies and then stay within that tribe or that echo chamber exclusively. We're all very, very open to listening to different perspectives and ideas. I mean, certainly people who have the background, the the credibility and things that seem to be fairly evidence-based, you know, nobody in this room is getting into really paranoid conspiracy theorists, the lunatic fringe of our industry, but, you know, no one in this room also just sits in one place and has a rigid way of thinking and is not willing to adapt it. We all search out a lot of new information. We're always constantly trying to learn new things. And I hope everybody listening sort of approached it the same way instead of getting very, like as you said, being dogmatic. The second you become dogmatic, it's just like, to me, like not having options is is like scary to me. Especially because like what happens if you can't fix it, but you've only learned this one thing, well, you're you're fucked. And like maybe that comes from my own personal experience of being in pain, but like some stuff 
doesn't work for me that should work for some people and so i had to figure out ways of doing that but that's just i guess that's what you're broken though you're but like i think that that but like imagine if you were broken and like people couldn't help you like you have to go figure it out for yourself and to be helpless and dogmatic and stuck in one thing like that's scary to me yeah if anyone listening um has never watched weedo's lifting videos just go and watch this shit because despite someone who talks about the you know history of injuries and all this sort of stuff and we've all talked about before we don't like using language like people being broken or dysfunctional but uh, he can move at a terrifying amount of weight for a lot of reps for someone who but that's why he's pretty broken but like then you can talk about attachment and lifts and stuff and like that's probably why i'm so fucked up but that's okay like there's a little bit of give and take it's like well i like to do that so it's kind of like you're out there doing stuff yeah trying new things to try to see what works and what doesn't well i mean you could be able to be one of those guys who's like this is the only thing that works for me. I'm just going to keep doing this. But you're like, what if I did this? What if I breathe this way? What if I run my back or extend my back? Or what if I change my hip position? You're playing with it and you're trying to see what works. And then you're using that when you're training your clients. Well, that's what does get lost is like, I think like, and that's where I say a lot of this stuff's task specific, but the stuff I've done in my life and the stuff people that you're dealing with do in their life, morph them into this thing. And that's their history. So you can, you just need to figure out how you can morph them into whatever they want to be. But like that comes with, knowing other stuff if you only know fucking dean's hip and shoulder blueprint and that's all you've ever done for your whole life it's gonna be a pretty good starting point but <laughs> you didn't you don't cover everything you didn't cover someone's big toe no that's why we had even more yeah. here because it was that much more <laughs> this uh, hopefully we haven't lost anybody because we we're fairly far down that hole no i think that was good because that was relevant because he's been posting about stretching and stuff a lot and i think you're, you're going into a lot of the research so it's good to hear your thought process behind it because it, it kind of confirms that your products are awesome because of this, this, and this. There you go. So let's, you talk about posting. So let's actually go into something I want to ask about is, uh, you know, how do you approach the social media aspect of your brand? Uh, and has anything influenced the evolution? Is I've, you know, been following you for a really long time and I've noticed an evolution. I've even noticed a couple things recently you started doing that I'm like giving you feedback, saying, hey, I like that. That's actually really good. So where's that stuff coming from? Um, I, I wish I could tell you I had a plan, but... A lot of it is just roll with the punches, essentially. Like when I first started off going onto Facebook a lot, it was easy because you could put up a blog post on Facebook and it would reach everyone on Facebook who you were friends with. They've changed the algorithm around where they've rejected a lot of external links unless you embed it in a certain way where Facebook now takes control of it, which is very tough to do. You can't even really embed a YouTube link on Facebook anymore just because it competes with a Google company, which is different than Facebook. So for reach, Facebook is becoming way, 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 way less effective than other means. Facebook owns Instagram. So if they change the algorithm on Instagram to a point where it changes reach, it's going to affect that way too. So a lot of what I've been doing in terms of trying things out on social media is just adjusting content, adjusting how I'm trying to reach people, adjusting how I can get people to off links. But in terms of like what I'm doing, it's not really a here's my strategy all the time. It's more like, well, what if, what are people connecting with? What are people resonating with? What I found most effective is, and probably will always be email. So if I send out an email to 10,000 people, I know 10,000 people will get that email. I put up a blog post on Facebook. 1% of the people who follow me might see that blog post, Mm -hmm. maybe two or three, put something up on Instagram, gets buried in the feed after about 20 minutes. Yeah. And it's a matter of, you know, how often is somebody refreshing and how many people did they follow that would bury that post. I put something up on an Instagram story. It might resonate with some people, but even just looking at the number of times it gets viewed compared to the number of followers I have, it's like one to 2% Mm. as far as the reach goes. 
So a one to two percent reach on social media versus a one hundred percent reach on email. I know that people will get email. I know that people will be able to open up. I can see who clicks on the link and who doesn't, who deletes it, who goes to the website, all that kind of stuff. I can actually see the data on that. So when it comes to how I'm marketing stuff, I'm actually going back to direct email more so than social media. You have to also do a lot of things to build brand and reach to be able to have those people on your email. So yep. there's a whole bunch of tactics to get those emails in the first place. Yep. And so it's sort of a double-edged sword because you gotta write great content on your website to then get people to subscribe to your newsletters, one of the ways, or, yep. or your emails. And if they don't see it on social media, then they're not subscribing. Not correct. So for your social media, if they're not seeing it because of one to two, three, one to three percent reach, mm -hmm. they're not gonna see it anyway. Yep. So if somebody is looking for something what are they going to do? Google search. What gets shown on Google? Websites, blog posts, pages, that kind of stuff. What doesn't get shown is any Facebook post or Instagram post. It'll actually show a YouTube video clip way before it shows any social media stuff. So if I go onto Instagram and I'm looking for information on something, I'm not going to find it. I'm going to find it on Google. People already know that. So if I'm looking for ways to adjust my squats so that my hips don't hurt, I'm going to go to Google first. Instagram yep. won't show up on that. So if somebody's looking to find information, I put a blog post up on it and include enough words that it meets, meets search engine optimization criteria where Google will actually rank that. People will see that before they see a social media post. So in order for people to see my social media, they have to already be following me. For somebody to see my blog post, all they have to do is a Google search on a topic that I've talked about and it'll come up for them. So in order to get new emails, it's actually better to write a blog post where it can be searched on Google or on YouTube or something like that and then direct people to the website versus trying to put something on social media to collect emails because the reach is just non-existent on social media. Mm -hmm. That's becoming more and more of a problem like you said. Yeah, because they want to encapsulate everything inside and they don't want to let people outside of the network. So um, here's a good way to look at it because you have an established following, you have a reputation in this industry. And um, in my one-on-one -on -one conversation with a lot of trainers who are following my social media and are listening to this podcast, they're very interested in getting out and writing more. They're interested in building brand. Obviously, they want more career success. So for someone who's in that position who hasn't necessarily had their career and their brand hit critical mass yet, where would you say there are good places for them to direct their efforts in order to, I mean, try to ascend to the tier of following that you've... Instagram achieved. booty pics. So that, that would Sugar be the first place that I would go, right? <laughs> Danny Sugar literally just said that to me in a DM. Yeah. It's like, yeah. What, okay, is it, to clarify that, not a booty pic. She didn't send you a booty she, she <laughs> tell no, you. No, no, she pics. was saying, yeah. and it was in jest that in order to build Instagram following is like post booty pics. Yeah, just yeah. need to clarify yeah. she's yeah. married. I, I mean, I, I might be behind the curve on that one. I mean, I'm built like a, a Russian shop putter more than I am like an Instagram fitness model. But um, the best thing, the hardest thing to do is to start. The second hardest thing to do is continue. So if you want to become a good writer, write, and then write more, and continue to write. If you want to be good on camera, put yourself on camera, and then continue putting yourself on camera. Look at someone like Omar Isa, like mm -hmm. a guy who had like nothing going for him when he started his YouTube channel, because he was just a small, young trainer working out of a commercial gym in Toronto, and he built a following because he became good on camera, and he was able to connect with the people who were sitting on the other side of the channel, watching him and listening to what he does. He was one of those guys who would distill all the research information and put it into actionable use in a way that connected with a lot of people. He's able to communicate in a way that I can't even approach just because that's who he is and he comes out alive on camera. I write, he is on video. 
He's actually one of the unique people, the first one I think of certainly, who isn't so much a written article um, part of our industry. He's actually primarily famous in our world because of YouTube. Yeah. And he's an exception because I don't tend personally to look at people who are famous for YouTube with the same level of respect and authority as people who have established themselves through article writing and presentations and all these sort of things. Yeah. Um, Jeff Nibbert is another good example of someone who I think is probably big and established himself. On YouTube, he has other things. But I think they're the exceptions, not necessarily the rule, because you think YouTube, you think well, the, well, the other extremists, Colleen Russell and, uh, and C.T. Fletcher and these guys. But, but even then, they have reach. They have reach. So it, it's an avenue. And you think about how many people will go on YouTube and just watch videos all day long. It's massive. Yeah. And when I've talked with like my nephew, who just wrote his CanFit Pro certification to become a new trainer, I'm like, where are you getting your information from? YouTube. He's 19 years old. That's the next generation of trainers. Where are they coming from? They're not reading blogs. They're watching videos on YouTube. So it's an avenue to get people. Now, again, with YouTube, who owns that company? Google. Google. So when somebody types in anything for a search, what is Google going to show? YouTube stuff. YouTube video. So if you want to get shown and you want to get found, mm -hmm. when people are looking for what you're trying to talk about, Facebook and Instagram are probably not going to be what you want to focus entirely on. You can also cross-promote really easily. You put up something on Instagram as a post, you take the same video that you did on Instagram, put it on YouTube, and then you use that in a blog post. So now you've got one piece of content that you used on three different platforms to reach a broader network. And you can chuck it up even more than that. You can take little bits and pieces and you could have it on Instagram TV, IGTV, yeah. you could have bits in your story, you can repurpose the Snapchat. I think this gets a bit ridiculous at a certain point, yeah. but the thing is you can repurpose one piece of work in many different places, yeah. in different forms. You've got way more opportunities for that. So think about like a big company that's trying to market themselves. They're going to show TV ads, they're going to show radio ads, they're going to show Facebook ads, they're going to show Google search engine ads. They're all going to show ads for the same product or service. Why are we doing anything different? Let's put our resources to use, use the social media that we need. But if the name of the game is to have eyeballs on what we're trying to do, we need to find those eyeballs and then put information in front of them. So if all I'm doing is saying, well, I'm going to take out my blog post and then share it on Facebook and 3% of the 5,000 people who follow me will see it. Not necessarily saying they'll click on it, they'll see it. Then they have to go into it. Versus direct email where 10,000 people will actually see the email and then I can see who clicks on it, who doesn't click on it. Okay, cool. I go onto YouTube, I go onto Google and do all that kind of stuff. It gets in front of the eyeballs that I'm looking for. And I just quickly thought of this, it's probably worth it. If anybody's really interested in learning more about how to do direct email stuff, uh, Tim Art's wife, Tara Art, yep. is actually really good at this stuff. She, and she does good work. You can sign up for her email list and she's got both free information and also uh, you, know, you can hire her a paid product if you really want to get good at this stuff. So mm -hmm. that's probably a good place to go if this is something you're interested in. And she's an awesome person. She's a quality person. Yep. Hit him up with the new one. What? Hit him up with the non-book one. You don't have any other bullshit questions you want to ask? No, I got, all, I got all my bullshit questions. I wanted to talk, I, I, I really, honestly, I, I, it was cool because you've been posting about stretching and mobility and stuff. And there's just been a lot of, there's been not even that one argument, there's been so many fucking arguments. And I don't know how I always find them. I never get into them, but I'm like, I don't know. It, and I just read a bunch of people's opinions and it's just, it's interesting that this whole evidence base versus the people who aren't evidence based, but the people who are in the middle, they just all fucking hate each other. And I wanted to get your opinion on some of that stuff because I, you're a logical, rational guy. And I, I got exactly the answer I, I thought. Hating each other is also silly, a silly waste of energy too, and and that's one of the reasons why I quickly disengaged from you know allowing that to escalate into an actual argument. Is 
you know, once I noticed that A, there's a bit of straw man going on and then the yardsticks are moving on, even the point of the conversation was like, this is a complete waste of my time and this is a distraction. I'm not even gonna get sucked into this. It was probably a mistake. And again, I always go, all right, this is a reminder why I don't do this stuff. <clears throat> and I need to every six months to go, okay, that was fairly harmless. Would you, what do you think was gonna happen? It was what I wanted to be. <laughs> Jesus. I just saw something, I'm just like, I, I and I, it annoys me when I see people making these generalized statements that I think are, I mean, again, it's my opinion, but I think it's solid enough that we shouldn't be saying this particular exercise is bad across the general Honestly, population. though, that's how all these careers are getting built. I need to push, and pull, And I went through whatever. this guy's social media, and I realized he's making sensational statement over sensational statement, and he's there to be provocative. I'm like, oh, this is a waste of my time, right? I mean, yeah. And I know that I'm not going to change anybody's opinion. Then I look at the other comments and that fully half of the other commenters were also saying the same thing or similar to me. And once you get these provocateurs who are more about that than actually like trying to be, you know, generally positive. And I've shifted massively towards trying to generally be positive in my message and, and not this argumentative bullshit and not get sucked into this stuff because it's such an emotional drain on me and the next you know I'm like well I want to get back to I think but it'll literally happen where I'm thinking in client sessions oh what, what's being responded to I'm like fuck that but shit but a lot I'm of the purpose of a lot of those things is show that people don't actually have a under like you said half the people there's half the people that didn't understand why they held their belief and that's a problem so I mean like and that's why I don't even get involved in it because I don't I don't want to be that's not part of the solution in my opinion like to expose people for not <laughs> understanding their opinions it's like whatever like just be better people at educating just tribes and then those tribes become very very ideal ideological I made that point too and some guy comes in and is like oh what's an ideological uh, blah 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 and I was like Dude, go do a Google search and I'm, I'm peace, I'm out. I'm not even getting it. Well, part of it also comes down to understanding what are people there for. Most of them are there to try to understand better or to give an opinion. It's not because they hate you or because they think you're bad or anything. Some people have an antagonistic personality. Okay, cool, whatever. Brad Schoenfeld is a great example of how to deal with people coming onto his site all the time because he's got some epic level trolls who <laughs> misinterpret research and, so, and all this kind of stuff. But he says that when he's dealing with these people, he doesn't want to block them. Because he wants to use it as teaching opportunities for any students who might be watching and listening. Mm -hmm. It's like they're coming at him with an argument. Okay, here's the counter argument for that based on what the body of science is. They come at him with a moved goalpost argument. Okay, here's how to get back on track for that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So he's viewing it as more like he's an educator. He's trying to educate as best he can. If somebody's moving the goalposts and using straw mans, keep them on topic. The best way to get a troll really ticked off is stay on topic. And then they just can't get you to buy into all the stuff and get ticked off. Well, that's where it is valuable to see. Like, and again, I don't even know. Maybe it's just because my friends are antagonistic. But watching these arguments, I learn a lot about those thought processes and the different thought processes yeah. of people arguing. And, and then I don't have to get involved with it. I can just know. Like, if I were to deal with this problem, I'd probably approach it similar to what you're saying. And yeah. it's just a matter of you don't really know that unless you kind of get lean in a little bit. But yeah. I mean... I Plus, know. I mean, being somebody who's worked in education, you know about de-escalation techniques, Yeah. right? So it's something where if you were to apply a couple of those de-escalation techniques and actually agree with the person on some context and then just adjust thinking one or two ways, they might be able to say, oh, I never thought of it that way. And boom, now that you've yeah. got somebody who's not at that escalated point making straw mans, but all it took was for you to just say, yeah, you're right. You, take, time, you make fun of someone's baby and like yeah. it's game over. It's already... Jordan Syed said this on air with us recently. <clears throat> Excuse me. And he said that someone came in and something, said something really negative, I think, on a video he had or whatever. 
And Jordan's just a sweet-natured person. He, he goes and he messages guys like, hey, man, like, you know, instead of firing back at him, he's like, hey, man, you know, is everything okay? And like, something to the effect, he was just really nice to the guy. And the guy came, comes back and he's like, you know what, man, I just had a really shitty day. And he was sort of blown away that Jordan was really just turned around and nice to him. Next thing you know, they got the chatty. And the guy turns around and becomes a client of Jordan's. Yeah. And I think Jordan's, is, you know, teaches sort of a master class on how to navigate that stuff. Everybody's different. Uh, Nick Tuminello's attitude, and he said this with us, is he doesn't even respond to trolling behavior because his philosophy, and these are anymore, all... Anymore. Yeah, these are all valid philosophies where he doesn't encourage people to get his attention and his teaching for free by yeah. coming in and being antagonistic. So there's different approaches, and I think that's also a very valid mm-hmm. point. Yeah. You get Elaine Norton, who has built a brand upon being full of bombast and yeah. going in attack mode and drawing trolls in. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of different ways we, to do we it. We talked about that, James, I was asking, because like, there's all these people that will use your post, for example, to like, question it and like show me some studies and stuff. And like you're not required to give them a free education when you have products that you charge for. And so yeah. I think a lot of these, the new generation expect that some of these people that are posting this stuff are there to educate them. And that's not always the case. Like you can give your free content, but you're not going to give them everything you have. Like fuck off. Well, I mean, there's kind of a double-edged sword to that. I mean, you're building your brand by being an educator. So mm-hmm. you have to educate mm-hmm. in a certain element. Yeah. And you have to provide a reason for people to pay for your free pro- or for your products. So that de- demands you to give out free content. Just not the, the level of, sorry, maybe I should rephrase that. In the level of what some of these people expect, you're going to give them an answer, and it's going to be a good answer based on this. Yeah, but you're I'm not going to give them the whole do thing. A meta analysis no. for them on the spot. Of the people want that line. though. Like there's been True. there's been some real like Normal. real greasy, angry yeah. people on some of, on some of these people that we're talking about, and like they're just like you got to prove this, this, and this, and this, and like they don't got to do anything. Yeah, it's, it's like, like cool. Here's the meta analysis that I was referring to. Yeah, go read it, and like yeah. they won't they won't do it. They want you to break it down for them and make your own review about it. It's just like I, I just don't want to be that person. At, at yeah. a certain point, you just got to tune that kind of garbage out. Yeah, and then it becomes more a matter of, well, I've shown you the evidence that's available on it. What more do you want? Did you read the evidence? Are you willing to say that it's valid? Like, what are your critiques of the evidence? And then you have to kind of make it more about, well, you're accusing of this. Show your proof, right? And if they don't have the ability to show proof by coming to the table with similar research studies or coming to the table with actual evidence to be able to show that what their viewpoint is is accurate, game over. It's like playing any of the card games like Dungeons and Dragons. You're not playing with any more cards, right? Your your deck is empty. You got nothing, so you're out of the game. I don't think we have cards for Dungeons and Dragons. That, that magic, shows you how little Magic the Gathering is what he is. Sure, that. Yeah. Which is funny because the company that has, owns Magic the Gathering, they're called Wizards of the Coast, turned around and bought TSR, which is the company behind Dungeons and Dragons, because Wizards of the Coast did really fucking well with Magic. And then pulled in and pretty much saved you, Dungeons You were Dragons. playing Magic, he was watching wrestling. And you make fun of me for watching wrestling. Yeah. You know, playing fucking card games and knowing yeah. the inner business workings of it all. All the Dungeons and Dragons fans. Like, I grew, Dean's an idiot. He's not up, a real... grew up heavily on Dungeons and Dragons <laughs> and fantasy role-playing games and, yeah. and RPGs and he all this sort of stuff. He, he was a LARPer, too. I never got into LARPing. No, none of that stuff. He's, such He's a more LARPing. cosplay. He does more of the anime. He just dresses up. <laughs> none of that stuff, by the way. In fact, I never got into anime, funny enough. Um... Comic books, pretty good. Like, I mean, Dean's a big... Guido, because there's two Deans here. Guido's, like, covered in Spider-Man tattoos. Yeah. So, like we've all got our... They, uh, we also have the title for this episode. It's going to be Giving Dynamite to a Kid, and we're going to put your head on the Dynamite Kid, the wrestler. So It should be Napoleon Dynamite. Actually, that would work even better. Yeah. We recently did a Napoleon Dynamite, didn't we? Maybe. Where he's doing the dance scene. Fuck it, I would have been... Yeah, you know what? That'll work. Okay, we'll the, do that. But he does the... the... But anyway, speaking of all this, like, <laughs> you know, like... 
leisure time pursuit and stuff, we've actually yeah. shifted because it kind of goes along with the whole idea that we've always asked people, hey, what's a book you've been reading? Um, but then we sort of shifted into being able to prioritize personal time and things away from work instead of this endless productive grind that people feel compelled to do. Mm-hmm. So what are some of the things that you do to prioritize your both, how are you prioritizing work, but more importantly, how are you setting boundaries on your personal time and what have you been doing with your personal time most? Um, well, for books, I've been reading the Game of Thrones series. I'm up to I, book I four just right told now. you that we were no longer asking the book question. I know, but that's, that's downtime, right? Because <laughs> right, yeah, Game of Thrones is not work productive. Yeah. So it's something where it's like, yeah, I could be reading research, but that's work. So I've been reading the Game of Thrones book series. I'm up to book number four now. And it was really cool to be able to see the parallel between the TV show and it's, what the books are doing, cool, but also yeah. where they diverge really quickly. Um, one of the big things I wanted to do when I started working independent was to be home for dinner every night. Mm-hmm. So I set time boundaries on that where at the end of the day at 6 o'clock, I'm going home and I'm going to go eat dinner with my wife, walk the dogs every chance I get because we, we, I live in a great area with a lot of walking trails and that's kind of a, a decompression thing for me, but also just to walk the dogs. They need to get walked and I need to walk around sometimes too. And then... Um, travel. I mean, a cool thing is I'm going to Athens here in a couple of weeks to co-teach a workshop. So I'm organizing just like some sightseeing things when I'm there. So go see the Acropolis, go see uh, a couple of cool things that are over there and eat some good Greek food. So, and this yeah. is not a work trip where you're presenting no, well, it is a work trip, but I'm organizing like some tourism kind of things while I'm there rather than it being like a Vienna trip where I had like 14 hours to get over jet lag, teach a workshop and then oh. come home. Was that the one where you post this picture of you looking, you know, haggard and you, like, I don't know, was a bag never made it or you missed it? That was Australia. Australia. Yeah. That was uh, coming back from, from my flight from Melbourne to Sydney, uh, was, was, it was actually canceled. They put me on a flight that was two hours later and then that flight was delayed by like 50 minutes. So my three hour transfer window in Sydney was down to like 40 minutes. So I had to go from domestic arrivals to international departures, which is another terminal away which is like a subway ride and like a dead sprint through multiple terminals, get through security and then find my plane before it actually took off. So I had to jettison my bag and just like, screw it, I'll figure out how to get it later. And it was just closed and like toiletries and stuff. Some airports are messed up. We were just in, where, where was it? Maybe it was Vancouver. Um, but you would go from international to domestic without going back through security because they yeah. had like a safe bus route. And I was like, oh, this yeah. is so awesome. Why doesn't anyone do this? Because anytime you get stuck, Switching, you yeah. can get fucked. If, like, oh, depending yeah. on, like, and it's it's like, why do you do it this way? Like, and I'm sure just... there was a way to do that, but I was in a hurry and I was like, where do I go? Where do I yeah. go? And I was like, this way to international. Boom. So I went through there. I looked at the baggage carousel where my bag was probably going to come out. And I was like, peace, and ran to try to get to the subway. The subway I got on, it took me in the wrong direction, right. away from the airport. Which okay. I was like, oh crap. Okay, now I got to go on to the, get off that one. Wait ten minutes for the next one that would take me back to the airport sprint through the gates at the subway because in order to get off you have to swipe your ticket that I just bought that wasn't working so I jumped the turnstile and I got yelled at by the woman in the corner hey you got it back actually and I was like here's my ticket it didn't work and I just started sprinting expecting security to come out and tackle (laughs) me or something like that the escalator to get out of the subway up top was like 90 or 100 feet I'm going at a dead sprint two stairs at a time thinking oh good I'm glad I've been biking to work because I actually have some cardio otherwise I'd be dead and then I'm trying to sprint to try to find my security gate. I'm running ahead of people lined up in security. It's like, move, 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 move. Get through passport control. And then I'm like, where's my plane? Where do I go? And I had to like dead sprint around while I got a backpack on my back. And I'm like shoving Asian tourists out of the way. And it was just a, a you made rough it. go. I made it. 
and I've been dealing with plantar fasciitis in my foot ever since. Really? Yep. Yeah. Wow. I, I, I'm just thinking that that shit wasn't even worth it. <laughs> I mean, it was worth it, but I, I got the call two weeks later after I'd been trying to contact Virgin to say, you know, I left my bag, here's the tech client number, what do I do about it? They're like, oh yeah, we'll call you when we have information. I got an email two weeks later, like, from another organization at Sydney Airport. They're like, yeah, we got this bag here. We don't know what you want us to do with it. And I was like, I've been trying to get a hold of people for this for like the last two weeks. They're like, yeah, contact this company and they'll ship it out to you. That's all it took was that one yeah. email exchange. So I got my bag back. It only cost 300 bucks. Oh, shit. <laughs> we should probably uh, mention what's coming up as well. Uh, you know, Evolve Canadian Strength Symposium 2020 in September. Yep. So by the time this comes out, Next week. You know what? I was going to hold it back, but I mean, I do really reveal the speaker lineup on Evolve Radio. So fuck it. We can actually say it. I mean, sure. We, we're going to be releasing this on social media anyway. So we've arranged 10 presenters, and we have you speaking again. Obviously, you're one of our partners in this whole adventure. Mm-hmm. But we've we've had Christian Thibodeau on the podcast recently. So Christian Thibodeau's coming in from Quebec. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, Getting him out to these big type things with a large group of people just doesn't straight up happen. He does his own events. We've got John Goodman coming in. He's going to do a half-day pre-conference presentation on, well, it's going to be some sort of fitness business. Online thing. coaching. Online coaching. And then he's going to do an hour during the main body as well. That's, I think, the plan. We've got Jordan Syatt flying up from uh, New I guess he's probably he's based in New York. Yeah. And then he's going to bring his videographer up. So we've got him doing a big presentation. It should be on nutrition. We've got our friend Sam Smiley coming in. Mm-hmm. Uh, Hannah Gray, who was one of our presenters last year and who's a very good friend of ours. Yep. She is part of the lineup. Megan Calloway's coming in from Vancouver. She's a friend. She was here last year with us. Yep. Brian Cron couldn't make it last year, last minute. He had a medical emergency in the family I had to deal with, but he's excited to be here this year. So he's in this lineup. Lee Boyce was here last year. He was probably the most, might have been the most popular presentation based on the, the feedback from everybody. So he's, he really was pushing to come back. We said, absolutely, let's bring you back. Uh, we've got a local doctor, orthopedic surgeon named Jesse Slant, uh, sorry, Chance Slade. Yep. Stumble over that. Or Slade Chance. Slade Chance. I said yep. it backwards, but apologies. I actually don't know Jesse very well, but he should have something that's, we're hoping is really good quality because I've heard great things about him. Mm-hmm. And then, who am I missing off the top of my head? We're, we're missing one. Uh, Do we have another American in there? Who, no, we only have the one American, so okay. we're missing somebody who's Canadian. Shoot, I'm gonna look this up. Um, meanwhile, just throw it at it. Someone's gonna be mad at me for forgetting a, a name. I don't think anyone's gonna be mad. Well, any, any your thoughts on what we're planning? So it's gonna be a great event. Last year was a really big success. We exceeded a lot of the numbers we expected to hit, and the feedback was great. So this year we're expecting it to be even more great. The even more greater greatest. Yeah. Um, Plus, it's cool. the number two in 2020. The number two strength symposium in 2020, which is gonna mean. A whole lot of twos going on. Oh, oh gotcha. I was, like, I, was like, I was like, it's, it's not, the, the, there's two symposiums? In it's our second year? symposium in the year 2020. Gotcha. There's all sorts of twos going on. Now I just miscounted. We got all 10 there. I okay. think I, what I almost didn't count was the fact that you were part of it as well. So, yep. yeah. So all 10 names. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, yep, like you said, uh, super excited. It went off incredibly well. We got some great feedback from our speakers saying that it was... We have a great operations manager for our event. Yeah. Michael DeJoux is just unbelievable. He's you know part of Corporate Evolve. Mm-hmm. And he did some stuff that we wouldn't have had the, 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 the bandwidth yeah. to have done. And it made it great. And the interest to, from the people who were there last year, they're already really excited about this lineup. 
And yeah, so you can treat this as a public announcement. And if you're interested, you can message one of us and we're going to give you the info. We should have the website for registration up. The plan is hopefully before the end of January, if not even within the next week or so. So it'll be available soon. And uh, we really hope you guys, if this is the sort of thing that interests you, that you'll consider traveling in or if you're local, obviously, it's a no-brainer. Uh, I'll spend five to seven times the amount of money it takes just to register for this to travel to other cities plus the time lost of work. I know the extra travel days. So we're bringing this something here to you guys here locally and we hope you'll uh, join us for it. Yeah, cool. All right, let's remind people where to find you. DeanSomerset.com, uh, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube. I just use my name, so yeah. It's a good yeah, way to except go. for uh, Instagram where you use DS D Somerset one. one because you made a Dean Somerset and then yeah. you've lost access to it. You yeah, I can't remember the passport or a password for the first one that I made, so I just made a new one. <laughs> so there is another Dean Somerset on Instagram. It is me, but I have no idea how to access the account. All right, thanks guys for uh, for tuning in, and we've got more great guests coming up over the next several weeks, one weekly, and uh, have a great day. See you guys. Shut up and sit down.